Welcome back, fellow weavers. And first-time listeners, welcome. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project, We Tell Ourselves Stories. My name is Andrew Roth. I'm a scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society. A lot to talk about this month, exploring freedom's fault lines, tales of race and gender. Today's episode, episode four in the American Tapestry, today's episode touches all our culture war hot buttons, race, gender, sexual orientation, indigenous people, white supremacy. And as we explored last month, the ongoing fight by those excluded from the American creed's glittering statements, we hold these truths, all men are created equal, endowed with certain unalienable rights. The excluded's ongoing fight to be included by appealing to those rights, while those who would exclude them reject the rights upon which the excluded appeal. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, just be true to what you said on paper. In fact, the major thread, the American tapestry's bloodiest and most persistent thread, might be the excluded's fight for inclusion and the violence, rhetorically, emotionally, physically, the violence of those who excluded them. Before we begin, a couple of housekeeping notes. Throughout the program, I'll interject music. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. To break up simply listening to the sound of my voice, but the music is also a commentary on the topic of the moment. Music as an editorial aside, so to speak. And, occasionally, we'll be interrupted by the sound of an old-fashioned school bell to signal a pedantic aside, a sometimes short, sometimes longish, a sometimes a pedantic aside to take a look at a special topic. Or today, a time capsule sprint through a topic's history. We'll try to keep the pedantry to a minimum, but... Signals a special topic we'll explore. Well, today we have a series of topics. Native Americans, indigenous people, the question of the moment, was it a conquest or a theft? African Americans, when did American history start? What was the redemption? Women's rights, what was the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments? How many of you have actually read it, even those of you who think yourselves champions of women's rights? White supremacy, what was it? How deep are its roots? What does it mean for 21st century America? Why is it blooming all over again? Yes, a lot to discuss. Indeed, a lot to discuss. What is the American Tapestry Project? The heart of the American Tapestry are its warp and weft threads. Ever so briefly, and apologies to any genuine weavers listening for mangling, certainly oversimplifying the art of weaving, the warp threads hold a tapestry together. They are invisible in the finished product. The weft threads are the visible threads that tell the tapestry's stories. Taken together, they comprise its overall story. The warp threads, the warp threads are the American tapestry's foundational themes, its fundamental values. The weft threads are the patterns, the themes of America's many stories. I'm going to go over these quickly because we have discussed them before in episodes one, two, and three, but the warp threads are liberty, freedom, equality, and opportunity the ongoing experiment in self-government, blending diverse people into a people, as in we the people. The weft threads, while those are the major storylines, we tell ourselves stories, freedom story at home and abroad, 
Freedom's Fault Lines, Tales of Race and Gender, The American Dream, Success Stories, Horatio Elger and a Nation of Hustlers, The Immigrant's Tale, The Fusion Thread, The Ever-Expanding Definition of We the People. Why is any of this important? Well, if stories create cultures, then stories are at the heart, at the center of any culture. Today in America, we are learning the truth of William Butler Yeats's oft-quoted The Second Coming, or at least the truth of its most famous phrase, the center cannot hold. Who was W.B. Yeats, and what did he mean, the center cannot hold? The Second Coming was written in 1919 and reflects the chaos of the post-World War, post-World War I world unraveling and the beginning of the Irish War for Independence. Long before there was an internet, two lines from The Second Coming became literary memes symbolizing the 20th century's century of upheaval. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Here is Dominic West reading The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. What is Yeats talking about? Yeats's extended metaphor is, as the falcon gets higher and higher, the falconer, the center, can no longer hold it. The center loses its grip, loses its ability to hold things together. What has that got to do with the American Tapestry Project? The idea is that when the center, the core that holds a culture together, shatters, in our tapestry metaphor, frays, fragments, then the culture itself flies apart, disintegrates into a contest of all against all, in which the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. In our extended metaphor of the American Tapestry, the center are the stories we tell ourselves about where we came from, who we are, if we are to fulfill our destiny, how we ought to conduct ourselves. And the center of the center of those stories are our histories. Right now in America, we are having a culture war about whose history is America's history. More importantly, it's a culture war about what history includes and what gets left out. Do we celebrate only our virtues and ignore our sins? Or do we wallow in our sinfulness and ignore our virtues? How do we forgive what we can't forget? Why is it critical? Why is it imperative we get this right? What is it Freud said about the return of the repressed? What is it Faulkner meant when he said the past isn't dead? It's not even past. Today's topics, race, gender, Native Americans, white supremacy, are at the heart of the current culture wars, the current history wars. Historian Heather Cox Richardson, in her October 12, 2020, Letter from an American, addressed the issue head-on. Richardson wrote, Historians are not denigrating the nation when they uncover sordid parts of our past. Historians study how and why societies change. With luck, seeing those patterns will help us make better decisions about our own lives, our communities, and our nation in the present. As they say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. What does she mean? Well, just as in one's own life, you can't make progress unless you confront your errors, whether it's something as trivial as hooking your tee shot, or something as profound as a relationship with a spouse, a child, a colleague, whomever. You won't correct it until you acknowledge the flaw, own it, 
and move past it. So too for society. As Richardson continues, if we are going to get an accurate picture of how a society works, historians must examine it honestly. That means seeing the bad as well as the good. Because, after all, any human society is going to have both. Richardson uses as her prime example George Washington. Washington is, uh, hmm, not sure I'd call him a hero of mine. I do have a bust of him in my office. He is someone I admire, flaws and all. He might not have cut down that cherry tree, but he did have an explosive temper. He did own, he did own slaves. What to make of that? As Richardson remarks, George Washington's heroic refusal to be a king is no truer than his enslavement of other human beings. Both changed our nation in ways that we need to understand if we are to make good decisions about how to take care of our own society. Well, once again, what to make of that? George III said, If after the Revolutionary War, Washington surrendered his commission, he would be the greatest man in the world. Washington did. He also refused to be king, not only in name, but also in fact. When he said the presidency should not be for life, he refused to run for a third term, thus setting the two-term precedent. But Washington also owned slaves. He vigorously sought to recapture those who ran away, like the family cook Hercules and Martha Washington's personal maid, Ona Judge. And he rotated the slaves he brought to Philadelphia with him when he was president. He rotated them to ensure they were not in Pennsylvania long enough to become eligible for freedom. Washington's diary speaks of his troubled conscience. He sensed, he knew slavery was wrong. He was a man who believed in self-interest. He wrote that slaves do not work hard because they have no interest to be gained from their labor. Washington was the only founder who freed his slaves. Granted, he did this upon his death when, as some snipe, he was playing to history. That's a cheap shot, but not without merit. Still, he did free them and essentially divided his assets to provide for their support and training in a hostile world. How to deal with, how to deal with this complex, this contradictory story in the American tapestry? You deal with it by telling it, but you tell it without judgment. Why without judgment? What is the saying, ye without sin cast the first stone? Also because anachronism is a student of history's most grievous error. The past deserves to be judged on its own terms. How do you want to be judged? By terms you know or the terms of 300 years in the future about which you know nothing? All of that is secondary. You tell the story fully and truthfully because knowing it creates an honest picture of our past. It is only by honestly knowing our past we can honestly seek our destiny. Why? Well, because as Lady Macbeth in her damned spot discovered, history will out. The past will bite you. As Leonard Pitt said in a Miami Herald column October 9, 2020, face it, black American history is American history. It cannot be erased. Pitts was talking about President Trump's recent executive order on combating race and sex stereotyping, banning teaching ethnic studies, racial sensitivity, and cultural awareness programs at institutions receiving federal funding. It's probably the most overt, large-scale demonstration of white fragility yet. White fragility, as Robin DiAngelo explains in her book of that title, is white people's anxiety at any mention of race of white people's inability to confront America's racial heritage with open eyes. Pitt's commentary implicitly asks the question, what constitutes radical activism? Teaching American history with our eyes wide open or in a childish tantrum willfully shutting our eyes? Richardson answers, radical activism is the attempt 
to skew history to serve a modern-day political narrative. Rejecting an honest account of the past makes it impossible to see accurate patterns. And a nation grounded in fiction rather than reality cannot function, and reality is not going away. While Richardson's remarks are hardly Lincolnian, a house divided against itself cannot stand, her point is inarguable. For as Orwell said somewhere, something to the effect, that he who controls the present controls the past, and he who controls the past controls the future. The culture war over America's history is really a fight for America's future, for the soul of America. For that future to be the destiny America's founders dreamed, we need to understand our past with eyes wide open to both our virtues and to our sins. Most of America's sins and most of America's virtues can be found in the struggle of those first excluded from the glittering ideals of the American creed. We hold these truths by the excluded's fight for inclusion by appealing to those ideals. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, just be true to what you said on paper. Freedom's Fault Lines, Tales of Race and Gender. Native Americans, African Americans, women, white supremacists. Obviously, with such large topics, it's not possible to cover any, much less all of them in great detail. So, today's plan is to give a quick overview of each, a time capsule sprint through their major themes, identify significant individuals, and then we're going to take a closer look at one major event, events with which you might not be familiar. For example, regarding white supremacy, who was Alexander Stevens and what was his notorious cornerstone speech? In African-American history, what was the redemption and how does it resonate down to today? In the story of the women's movement, right from the start in 1848, what was the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments? In Native American history, what was King Philip's war and why was it important? That was Ray Zaragoza, a Native American, Pima tribe, Taiwanese singer-songwriter, singing her Driving to Standing Rock, a song she wrote supporting the 2016 Standing Rock protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline. So, the story of Native Americans, indigenous people, after European contact. What are the story's key themes, key storylines? Was it a conquest or a theft? Regarding conquest, well, <laughs> that's a loaded question. It clearly was a conquest. How can one possibly argue it wasn't? Was it a theft? That's a moral question. Judging the past doesn't get us anywhere. As David Rice shows in Who We Are and How We Got Here, Ancient DNA and the Science of the Human Past, humans have been on the move invading one another's territory since they first shuffled across the African savanna. Judging that behavior morally is like howling against the wind. It is what it is. But we are here now. We can learn from our past. We can learn from our mistakes. And if not make things right, no one is going to give North and South America back. But we who have benefited from that European conquest can attempt to make things, I'm not sure make things right is the right expression. We can attempt to improve the situation by doing two things. Learn our history. And having learned that history, Determined to honor the agreements our ancestors made. Determined to honor Native American treaties. That bell signals our first time capsule moment. I'm going to read this rather rapidly and hopefully not too confusingly. 
But here in time capsule fashion is a real, real superficial history of Native Americans. From Jamestown in 1607 to Plymouth Rock in 1621 and the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630 to King Philip's War in the 17th century to the French and Indian War and the Proclamation of 1763 to Pontiac's Rebellion to the Battle of Fallen Timbers to the Treaty of 1790 to Johnson versus McIntosh to 1830's Indian removal to the Treaty of Ecota and the Trail of Tears through the 19th century to the Dawes Act and Little Bighorn and massacres at Sand Creek and Wounded Knee to 1911's founding of the Society of American Indians, to the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, to 1968's Civil Rights Act in the American Indian Movement and the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act of 1998 that created casino culture and changed the economic arc of many tribal nations, to Kimberly Teehee's 2019 nomination as the first representative from a sovereign Native American government, the Cherokee Nation, to the U.S. House of Representatives as promised in 1835's Treaty of Dakota, to July 2020 and McGirt versus Oklahoma when the U.S. Supreme Court upheld 1833's treaty with the Creeks, granting them eastern Oklahoma as their permanent home. Whew, that was a lot. Now, obviously, that wasn't an entire history of Native Americans. That was a rather superficial and quick uh, review of major dates in the history of Native Americans after their first exposure to the English uh, in what we now call New England in the 17th century. What was King Philip's War? It speaks to the entire issue of conquest and theft and how we got to today. King Philip's War ended the first wave of English settlement in New England between 1620 and 1675. From John Winthrop's thinking the empty, disease-ravaged indigenous villages, a providential cleansing as God prepared the way for Christian settlement, to the back and forth between Native Americans helping the new settlers, to the settlers' insatiable appetite for land to the Native Americans adopting some English customs and attempting to adapt to these new people in their midst, to Native Americans' conversion to Christianity, to the settlers' insatiable appetite for land, which turns out to be a repeating theme, to finally the indigenous people fighting to save their land. In that back and forth, King Philip's War in some ways was a prequel to the entire European conquest settlement of North America and the beginning of American identity. As detailed in a fine short summary at History.com and, of course, elsewhere, the First Indian War, King Philip's War, was fought from 1675 to 1676 in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. It is called King Philip's War after the Wampanoag Sachem Medicom, sometimes known by his adopted English name, Philip. At first, he tried to live peacefully with the English, but finding that impossible, he led the rebellion. The Wampanoag and other indigenous tribes tried to live in peace with the English. They took English names. They converted to Christianity. They farmed, as did the English. They bought clothes in Boston. To no avail. The English appetite for land was insatiable. The indigenous people felt they were being squeezed out of their own country. King Philip's War was the Wampanoags and their allies' final stand resisting English settlements. Who was King Philip? He was the second son of the Wampanoag chief Massasoit, who had negotiated a peace treaty with the colonists at Plymouth Plantation as he futilely tried to stop the English from poaching Indian lands. In 1662, Massasoit's eldest son, Wamsuda, was arrested on suspicion of plotting war. He died while a prisoner, and Medicom, now known as Philip, came to power. Fast forward to January 1675. A Christian Indian warmed Plymouth Colony that Philip planned to attack, but they ignored the warning. 
Shortly later, his murdered body was found. A jury, a jury made up of colonists and Indians found three Wampanoag men guilty of murder. They were executed. In sense, Philip planned for war. In June 1675, the Wampanoag carried out a series of raids in Massachusetts, killing many colonists, pillaging, and destroying property. English officials responded by sending their militia to destroy Philip's home village of Mount Hope, Rhode Island. The war spread during the summer of 1675 as the Wampanoag attacked settlements throughout the Plymouth colony. In September 1675, the New England Confederation declared war against King Philip and his followers. That month, 700 Indians ambushed a wagon train of colonists. Almost all colonists and militia were killed in the fighting, known as the Battle of Bloody Brook. In retaliation, Plymouth Colony's militia attacked a massive Narragansett and Wampanoag fortification near the Great Swamp in West Kingston, Rhode Island. 300 Indians, including women and children, were either killed outright or died from exposure. Some were burned alive at the stake. The weakened Narragansett joined Philip's fight. After the Great Swamp fight, King Philip set up camp in New York, possibly to enlist Mohawk resistance, but the Mohawk attacked the Wampanoag, forcing them to retreat to New England. During the winter of 1676, King Philip's Confederacy assaulted English colonies, assaulted English colonies throughout Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Maine. The Indians drove Plymouth Plantation citizens to the coast. They also annihilated Providence, Rhode Island. In spring of 1676, however, the English began to prevail. In April, the Narragansett leader was captured, shot, and beheaded, leaving the Narragansett leaderless. In May, the militia killed almost 200 Narragansett at the Battle of Turner Falls. By midsummer, the English started giving amnesty to some Indians. Many war-weary Indians surrendered. However, the English double-crossed them, selling most into slavery. By late summer, King Philip and his allies were weakened and fleeing. An English-Indian soldier shot and killed King Philip on August 20, 1676, at, at Mount Hope. King Philip was hung and beheaded. His head was displayed on a pike at Plymouth Colony for 20 years. King Philip's death effectively ended the war, although clashes continued until the Treaty of Casco in 1678. King Philip's war was America's most ruinous, most destructive conflict. One in ten soldiers on both sides was killed. 1,200 colonists' homes were burned. The effects of the carnage lasted for years. For the native populations of southern New England, the war caused not only loss of life, but enslavement for some and, for all, the continued loss of independence and land. It's not possible to undo that history. What can we do now? Well, as the U.S. Supreme Court did in July 2020, we can heed the advice of that old sign on I-90 near Silver Creek exit. The grass is still growing. The water is still flowing. Honor Indian treaties. How? The U.S. government signed over 370 treaties with indigenous nations since 1778. A place to start might be revisiting the Pledge of Services and Benefits, such as education, health care, housing, and others. It won't be easy, but it's a place to start. That was Fannie Lou Hammer's version of the Civil Rights Anthem, 
go tell it on the mountain. Hammer took the line, let my people go, from the spiritual go down Moses, and then she added it to go tell it on the mountain's chorus. Hammer was a voting and women's rights activist, a community organizer, and a leader in the civil rights movement. Hammer was an organizer of Mississippi's 1964 Freedom Summer. She also co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus. Dying at 59 in 1977, she famously said she became involved in the civil rights struggle because I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. As with Native American history, it's impossible to cover all of African American history today. The, the very thought's almost absurd. But once again, here is a time capsule history of people, places, dates, and things. The African American experience in America is the story of a people's struggle for inclusion and acceptance in a place to which they did not choose to come, a place which has hardly been welcoming. From 1619, when the first Africans arrived in Jamestown throughout the entire colonial experience to 1776, and then the antebellum experience from 1789 to 1860, an experience freighted with constitutional compromises, abolitionism, fugitive slaves, and the Underground Railroad, to the Civil War and its aftermath of a second founding in the 13th. 14th and 15th amendments to the Constitution through reconstruction that was working until it wasn't, till it wasn't under the twin pressures of a lost cause inspired redemption and redeemers, leading to the compromise of 1877, America's most corrupt presidential election, to Jim Crow and the Black Codes and the struggle for freedom and equality led by Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Dubois, James Lynch, and legions of others, through the lynching era and the courage of Ida B. Wells, to the NAACP and the civil rights movement of the early 20th century, to Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby in 1947, to President Truman integrating the Army in 1948, to Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 and the Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 1960s, and Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., the Montgomery Bus Boycott, the Freedom Riders, and the Mississippi Summer of 1964 leading to the great civil rights legislation of the 1960s and the back and forth of inclusion and exclusion in the late 20th century to 2008 and Barack Obama elected president. President of the United States to 2013's Black Lives Matter down to the very present. We can't possibly cover all of that, but let me ask, who were the redeemers and what was the redemption? What do historians mean when they say the South lost the war and won the peace? The answer to that essentially revolves around the creation of a Southern myth combining two things. One, the fantasy that the antebellum slaveocracy was actually a peaceable kingdom of benign masters and happy slaves, as depicted in Edward Pollard's The Lost Cause, which told the story of the South's heroic and just war against northern aggression. And two, that the Civil War was fought for states' rights, the rights of states to determine their own culture and values, free of federal interference. That myth fueled the Southern resistance against Reconstruction, fueled the creation of Black Codes and Jim Crow, fueled the hyper-individualistic settling of the American West by disaffected Confederate veterans, fueled the creation of popular culture images of African Americans as either villainous rapists or happy sambos, which found its zenith in two popular yet offensive films, Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind, and has poisoned the American political culture down to the alt-right of the early 21st century. It's a story that needs to be told. Today, we only have time to look at one aspect of it, Redeemers and the Redemption. We are a band of brothers and native to the soil, fighting for the property we gained by honest toil. And when our rights were threatened, the cry rose near and far, 
Hurrah for the bunny blue flag that bears a single star. Hurrah, hurrah for Southern rights. The name Redeemers refers to a coalition in the defeated Confederacy that sought to undermine Reconstruction and restore, redeem, that old-time way the song Dixie says was not forgotten. It refers to the period between 1868 and 1877, creating the Jim Crow culture that endured until the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. Who were the Redeemers? They were the southern wing of the Bourbon Democrats, the conservative, pro-business, northern faction of the Democratic Party. It was a marriage of white business interests, primarily railroads and finance, to regain political power and to enforce white supremacy by a policy they called redemption. They sought to evict supporters of the northern radical Republicans. Those supporters included three basic groups. First and foremost, former slaves, or the freedmen. Two, carpetbaggers, who were a combination of three groups of people. Some of them were northerners who came south, like women school teachers and free northern blacks who wanted to open schools to help their brethren. But it also included another group, a group of opportunists who were not quite so noble, opportunists looking for a chance to make money. And then, of course, the third group were scallywags. Scallywags were white southerners who supported Reconstruction and the radical Republicans. They were poor southern whites who never prospered under the old slaveocracy. Unwilling to accept defeat, most white Southerners loathed the Reconstruction straight governments elected largely by freedmen and their allies. Secret Ku Klux Klan chapters of heavily armed Confederate veterans emerged in the late 1860s, but were put down by the occupying Union Army. If the fugitive slave issue of the 1850s was the war before the war, then the violent suppression of Reconstruction governments and black freedom, voting, and political involvement during the late 1860s and 1870s Well, that was the war after the war. A pattern emerged of violent white vigilantes suppressing black rights. The black and Republican governments were the legitimate state governments being destroyed by whites bent upon reasserting white supremacy. In 1868, white terrorists trying to prevent Republicans from winning the fall election killed some 200 freedmen in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana. It came to be known as the Opelousas Massacre. In 1874 and 1875, Formal paramilitary groups affiliated with the Democratic Party conducted intimidation, terrorism, and violence against black voters and their allies. In Louisiana's 1873 Colfax Massacre, white Democratic militia killed more than 100 Republican blacks in a confrontation over control of county offices. In 1874, white militia formed the White League, a Democratic paramilitary terrorist gang. In August, the White League assassinated six Republican office holders and up to 20 black witnesses in the Cushada massacre. New Orleans' Battle of Liberty Place was a pitched battle between thousands of armed militia and the duly elected black Republicans. The white militia seized the state government. They only retreated in the face of Union Army troops. Similarly, in Mississippi, North Carolina, and South Carolina, the red shirts enforced Democratic voting by intimidation and murder. They killed leaders and office holders, intimidated voters, or drove them away altogether. As Democrats took over state legislatures, they stripped most blacks and many poor whites of the vote. People in the movement chose the term redemption from Christian theology to describe the political transformation they desired, the end of Reconstruction. It represented the birth of a new Southern society rather than a return to its antebellum predecessor. The South became known as the Bible Belt, connecting redemption, 
that is the suppression of black people, to a new crusade to legislate morality. The redemption killed Reconstruction. When Reconstruction died, two old foes of American politics reappeared at the heart of Southern politics, states' rights and race. The two issues caused the Civil War and, in 1877, 16 years after the secession crisis, the South regained control of them. The presidential election of 1876 was the most corrupt election in American history. It led to the Compromise of 1877. In 1876, neither New Yorker Samuel Tilden nor Ohio's Rutherford B. Hayes gained a majority in the Electoral College. The Radical Republicans, in order to keep the White House, cut a deal with the Democratic Northern Bourbons and Southern Redemptionists. In return for the following, the Democrats agreed to toss the election to Republican Hayes. One, remove all remaining U.S. military forces from the South, which happened immediately. Two, appoint at least one Southern Democrat to Hayes' cabinet. David M. Key, a former Confederate soldier, became Postmaster General. Three, construct another transcontinental railroad using the Texas and Pacific and the South. It was never built. Help industrialize the South. It didn't happen until the late 20th century. And number five, let the Southern states deal with the blacks without Northern interference. In short, the radical Republicans betrayed their principles, sold out the freed African Americans, and created the tortured racial relations that bedevil America today. After the Compromise of 1877, the blacks in the South were resubjugated. Blacks were evicted from public office. Socially, the situation was worse. Black codes were introduced and Jim Crow became the law of the South. Vagrancy and anti-enticement laws were reinstituted. It became illegal to be jobless or to leave a job before the required contract expired. Sharecropping reigned. Segregation, American apartheid began. Economically, blacks were stripped of independence. In effect, the black community was re-enslaved in everything but name. As bad as the redemption was, Reconstruction had mixed results. The immediate and ultra-violent white backlash, but there was also the three great post-Civil War constitutional amendments abolishing slavery, establishing equal protection under the law, and granting black males the vote. While white settlers got free land in the West, the freedmen never got their 40 acres and a mule, but literacy rates rose dramatically, and, although fleeting, the principle of black political progress was achieved. All of which was swamped by Jim Crow laws in the late 19th century, the lynching epidemic that killed over 3,500 African-American men and women between 1889 and 1922, and the notorious Supreme Court decision, Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, which declared separate but equal constitutional, thus legalizing segregation and apartheid, which was not undone until Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 and the Civil Rights Act of 1965. Speaking of the horror of lynching, who was Ida B. Wells? Born a slave, she was the great anti-lynching activist of the late 19th and early 20th century. At one point, she was the most famous African-American woman in the country. Wells' parents were active in the Republican Party during Reconstruction. Her father was involved with the Freedmen's Aid Society and helped to start a school for freed slaves, Shaw University, where Wells attended school. At age 16, however, both of Wells' parents died, leaving Wells to care for her family. Resourceful and without fear, she convinced a school administrator she was 18 and got a job as a teacher. In 1882, Wells moved to Memphis, where she attended Fisk University. Wells began to write about issues of race and politics. 
a number of her articles were published in black newspapers under the moniker Iola. Wells eventually became an owner of the Memphis Free Speech newspaper. On a train from Memphis to Nashville in 1884, having bought a first-class ticket, Wells was outraged when the crew ordered her to move to the African-American car. She refused. Thus was born an activist. Infuriated by a Memphis lynching, Wells began her anti-lynching campaign in 1892. A friend of Wells's and two other African-American men had opened a grocery store. Their new business drew customers away from a white-owned store in the neighborhood, earning the enmity of white Memphis. Guarding their store against attack by envious whites, they shot several white vandals. They were arrested and brought to jail. They were never tried, for a lynch mob murdered them. Wells wrote newspaper articles denouncing the lynching of her friend and the wrongful deaths of other African Americans. Risking her own life, she spent months traveling the South gathering information about lynchings and then writing about her findings. Her writings angered the city's whites. A mob stormed her office and destroyed her printing press and other equipment. Wells, who was traveling to New York City at the time, was unscathed. Warned that she would be killed if she ever returned to Memphis, she remained in New York. Staying in the North, Wells wrote an in-depth report on lynching in America for the African-American newspaper, The New York Age. In 1893, Wells published A Red Record, a personal examination of lynching in America. In 1898, she led a protest in Washington, D.C., calling for President William McKinley to make reforms. In 1896, Wells formed the National Association of Colored Women. She is also a founding member of the NAACP. Wells also fought for women's suffrage. She died in 1931 at age 68. In fighting for social justice and inclusion, Wells remarked, I felt that one had better die fighting against injustice than to die like a dog or a rat in a trap. As impressive as Ida B. Wells is, let's end this section with Lift Every Voice and Sing. Dubbed the Black National Anthem by the NAACP in 1919, it is a song written as a poem by James Weldon Johnson in 1900. It is a prayer of thanksgiving for faithfulness and freedom with imagery evoking the biblical exodus from slavery to freedom, trotting that stony road to the promised land. Here is Winard Harper performing Lift Every Voice and Sing's opening stanza. Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the Women's rights. It's an old struggle. I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could, that your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute. That was Abigail Adams to her husband John Adams as John contemplated declaring independence at the Continental Congress in 1776. Not so well known as John's tongue-in-cheek rejoinder. Depend upon it. We know better than to repeal our masculine systems and completely subject us, ourselves, to the despotism of the petticoat. And so it goes. The women will have to do it for themselves.
Just as with Native Americans and African Americans, it's not possible to cover the history of women's quest for equality, of women's quest to be included in the American creed's glittering, we hold these truths. So we'll do three things. One, another quick time capsule sprint through the women's movement. Then a closer look at the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments women issued at Seneca Falls, New York in 1848. And we'll close this section with a short note on Wonder Woman, keeping the flame of women's equality alive through the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s before second-wave feminism emerged in the 1960s and 70s. That bell signals another time capsule, this time a sprint through the history of the women's movement. American women's quest for inclusion began in 1848 at Seneca Falls, New York with the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments and proceeded to 1849 when Elizabeth Blackwell became the first woman to graduate from medical school, to Sojourner Truth's famous Ain't I a Woman speech in 1851, to 1869 when Wyoming gave women the right to vote and hold office, and Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton founded the National Women's Suffrage Association, to 1916 Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood, to 1917 when Montana's Jeanette Rankin became the first woman elected to Congress, to the 19th Amendment giving women the right to vote in 1920, to 1923 in the first attempt at an Equal Rights Amendment, to 1933 in Frances Perkins, the first female cabinet member, to 1955 in Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat, to 1960's FDA approval of the first birth control pill, to 1963 in Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, JFK signing the Equal Pay Act, and 1964's Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, banning employment discrimination, to 1966 and the founding of the National Organization for Women, to 1968's the New York Radical Women's Coalition, to Title IX of the Education Amendment in 1972, banning discrimination on the basis of sex, to 1973 in Roe v. Wade, to 1981 in Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court, to Sally Ride in 1983, the first woman in space, to 1984 in Geraldine Ferraro, the first woman on a national ticket, to 1994 Violence Against Women Act to 2007, Nancy Pelosi, the first female Speaker of the House, to 2013's removal of the ban against women in combat, to 2016, and Hillary Clinton, the first woman to run for president on a national ticket, winning the popular vote by almost 3 million votes, to 2020, and the struggle continues. Wow, that's a lot. And notice, it comes right up to today. We're going back to 1848 and the first Women's Rights Convention in the United States. By 1848, equal rights for women was a divisive issue. Originally known as the Women's Rights Convention, the Seneca Falls Convention was held on July 19th and 20th, 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York. With little or no publicity, 300 people still attended. On the first day, only women were allowed, but the second day was open to men. Elizabeth Cady Stanton expressed the convention's goals. She wrote, We are assembled to protest against a form of government, existing without the consent of the governed, to declare our right to be as free as man, to be represented in the government which we are taxed to support, to have such disgraceful laws as give man the power to chastise and imprison his wife, to take the wages which she earns, the property which she inherits, and in case of separation, the children of her love. The convention proceeded to discuss 11 resolutions on women's rights. All passed unanimously except for the ninth, which demanded the right to vote for women. Stanton and Frederick Douglass gave powerful speeches supporting it, illustrating just how far ahead of their time they were. It barely passed. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, frustrated staying at home raising kids, 
recruited Lucretia Mott, Mary Coffin, Wright, and Mary M. McClintock to help organize that Seneca Falls Convention and to help her write its main manifesto, the Declaration of Sentiments. Lucretia Mott was known for her anti-slavery, women's rights, and religious reform activism. Mary McClintock helped Mott organize the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. Martha Coffinwright, a lifelong proponent of women's rights, was an abolitionist who ran a station on the Underground Railroad from her Auburn, New York home. Susan B. Anthony did not attend the convention. She met Elizabeth Cady Stanton in 1851. Anthony spent the next 50 years fighting alongside Stanton for women's rights, including co-founding the American Equal Rights Association. The Declaration of Sentiments. The Declaration of Sentiments was the Seneca Falls Convention's manifesto describing grievances and demands. Written primarily by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, it called on women to fight for their constitutionally guaranteed right to equality. As did all the excluded, women based their appeal for inclusion on America's founding ideals. The Declaration of Rights and Sentiments directly follows the Declaration of Independence's format, beginning with a stirring exhortation of human equality, just as the Declaration with its list of grievances against George III, the women then enumerated the many ills men have imposed upon them. The Declaration of Rights and Sentiments begins when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one portion of the family of man to assume among the people of the earth a position different from that which they have hitherto occupied, and then follows with a slightly but critically different statement of, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That men and women is essential, for as we noted in episode 3, the founder's definition of men in 1776 specifically excluded not only women, but men of color and white men who did not own property. Just as the Declaration of Independence the women then proceeded to list their grievances. He has not permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise. That is, men have prevented women from voting. She cannot vote, which then compels her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice. He has made her, if married, in the eye of the law, civilly dead. He has taken from her all right in property, even to the wages she earns. You ask yourself today, how could that have been? Well, under the legal doctrine of coverture, a woman had no legal standing as an independent person. All of her legal rights were subsumed by those of her husband. She was, in effect, his property. Overturning coverture was a major issue in the struggle for women's suffrage and women's equality. Coverture began to be overturned at the state level in Mississippi in 1839, the struggle continuing into the 1880s. As a result of coverture, a woman was, the Declaration continues, morally an irresponsible being who in the covenant of marriage is compelled to promise obedience to her husband, her master, the law giving him power to deprive her of her liberty and to administer chastisement. A nice way of saying it was permissible for a man to beat his wife. Well, maybe not permissible, but very difficult to prosecute because having no legal standing, where was the woman to go to seek relief? Because, as the Declaration points out, he has so framed the laws of divorce going upon a false supposition of the supremacy of man, even if free of male domination, women could not earn their own living except through menial labor because he, men, has denied her the facilities for obtaining a thorough education, all colleges being closed against her. 
The first college to admit women was Oberlin in 1833. Then, of course, there was the old double standard, because men, having created a false public sentiment by giving to the world a different code of morals for men and women, all of which resulted in men having endeavored to destroy her confidence in her own powers, to lessen her self-respect, and to make her willing to lead a dependent and abject life. Those are the grievances in the Declaration of Sentiments. Stanton and Mott then concluded with a bracing statement of their insistence that women have immediate admission to all the rights and privileges of citizens of these United States. Anticipating Rush Limbaugh and his slur feminazis, they asserted, we anticipate misrepresentation and ridicule, but marshalling their courage, they vowed, we shall use every instrumentality within our power to effect our object. The Declaration of Rights and Sentiments was signed by 67 women and 32 men, including Frederick Douglass, who wrote in his newspaper, The North Star, a grand movement for attaining the civil, social, political, and religious rights of women. This time that bell doesn't signal another time capsule, but a simple aside as we explore and answer the question, who was Wonder Woman? From the early 1920s to the 1960s, the women's movement went dormant. According to historian Jill Lepore and her The Secret History of Wonder Woman, the spirit of women's empowerment was kept alive by the first female comic action figure, Wonder Woman. Who created Wonder Woman? William Moulton Marston. He was an early 20th century psychologist. He lived in a polyamorous relationship with his wife Elizabeth Holloway, who personally I think was the brains of the outfit, and their shared life partner, Olive Byrne, Margaret Sanger's sister. Although their menage a trois sounds racy, it was actually quite domestic. Marston had two children each with Holloway and Byrne. Their relationship was more stable than many a traditional marriage. Marston created the systolic blood pressure test and invented a key component in what became the lie detector. Marston believed comic books had great educational potential. In the early 1940s, seeing the prominence of comic books with male superheroes, Marston had the idea of a superhero who prevailed not with strength and violence, but a superhero who prevailed with love. His wife, Elizabeth Holloway, said fine, but make her a woman and make her strong. Since women were perceived as the weaker sex, the solution was to create a feminine character with the strength of a superman, plus all the allure of a virtuous, beautiful woman. Walla, Wonder Woman was born. Using her strength and agility, she forced villains to submit by binding them with her magic lasso. Thus was the flickering flame of female empowerment kept alive. It seems inevitable that the Confederate flag and Dixie have become the symbols of white supremacy. What is white supremacy? Well, simplistically, it's the creed of those who deny the excluded, who deny the excluded inclusion in the American story. They do it by denying America's ideals, America's ideals of freedom, liberty, equality, and opportunity. Who are the white supremacists, and what is white supremacy? This time that bell does signal another time capsule, our last time capsule today, a very brief history of white supremacy. 
The story goes back to those first Africans in Jamestown in 1619 and white settlers fighting Native Americans all through the colonial era, and then the 19th century's Indian Wars and the slaveocracy of the Old South and the Dred Scott case in which Chief Justice Roger Taney said, the black man has no rights, a white man need respect, to the post-Civil War white paramilitaries crushing Reconstruction and subjugating the freedmen in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, and the jingoistic nonsense of 1897's The White Man's Burden, and the pseudoscience of eugenics to the 1920s Ku Klux Klan, to the Immigration Act of 1924's attempt to ban the mongrel scum of Southern and Eastern Europe, to white citizens' councils and George Wallace in 1968, right down to Pat Buchanan braying at the 1992 Republican Convention, to the Stevens, Bannon, and Miller, to the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017 and 2020's militias. It's an old and continuing story. What is white supremacy? According to Dictionary.com, it's the belief, theory, or doctrine that white people are inherently superior to people from all other racial groups, especially black people, and are therefore rightfully society's dominant group. And it's old in American history. The naturalization law of March 26, 1790 limited citizenship to free white persons of good character. By definition, it excluded Native Americans, indentured servants, slaves, free blacks, and Asians. And, as Wizard of Oz creator L. Frank Baum editorialized in 1890, the whites, by law of conquest, by justice of civilization, are masters of the American contents, and the best safety of the frontier settlements will be secured by the total annihilation of the few remaining Indians. Think about that the next time you watch The Wizard of Oz. What are white supremacy's roots? Today we'll look at two explicit examples of its founding statements. They go back to the early 19th century and then the South's justification for secession in the Civil War. First, John C. Calhoun. Calhoun was one of the most important political figures of the early 19th century. With Daniel Webster and Henry Clay, he was part of the great triumvirate of Senate leaders. He was Henry Clay's great adversary. Clay, the great compromiser, had a national vision. Calhoun, a former vice president, later in life became known as the Cast Iron Man for his rigid defense of white Southern beliefs. Calhoun approved of slavery and state rights as a rigorous defense of slavery. He said it explicitly in an 1837 speech on the floor of the U.S. Senate. The speech was entitled, Slavery, a Positive Good. Calhoun said, I hold slavery to be a positive good, as it has thus far proved itself to be, and will continue to prove so if not disturbed by the evil spirit of abolition. Never before has the black race of Central Africa from the dawn of history to the present day attained a condition so civilized and so improved, not only physically, but morally and intellectually. John C. Calhoun on the Virtues of Slavery. Alexander Stevens of Georgia, the Vice President of the Confederate States of America, Stevens explicitly rejected America's ideal of the equality of all men. He rejected the Declaration of Independence. He did it on March 21, 1861 in his notorious cornerstone speech. Stevens, as did all the Confederate States' secession resolutions, Stevens rejected America's founding ideals. Stevens defended slavery as a fundamental and just result of the inferiority of the black race and explained the differences between the U.S. and the Confederate constitutions and their opposing ideologies. As he said, Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas. Its foundations are laid, 
Its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. Stevens explicitly rejected the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution's promise of equality before the law. Quite frankly, it's offensive, not only the speech, but it's also offensive that Stevens has one of Georgia's two statues in the U.S. Capitol's National Statuary Hall. But it's also pleasing to think how tormented he would be that across that hall facing him are statues of Martin Luther King Jr. and Frederick Douglass. Sometimes the wheel does turn. Unfortunately, those statues only underscore white supremacy's resilience. For most 21st century terroristic acts perpetrated on American soil have been committed by homegrown white supremacists. From Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015, to the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, to 2018's Tree of Life Congregation slaughter in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to the Walmart shootings in El Paso, Texas in 2019 targeting Americans of Latino heritage, to white militia in fall 2020 threatening to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and to try her for treason. As the Department of Homeland Security said in September 2019, domestic terrorism, particularly white supremacist violence, is as big a threat as ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Well, that was quite a lot we covered this session. Freedom's fault lines, tales of race and gender, the excluded's continuing struggle for inclusion in America's promise of freedom, liberty, equality, and opportunity, of the excluded's attempt to be included by appealing to those very ideals, while those who would exclude them reject those ideals. Not wanting to give the apostles of hate the last word, let's listen to Neil Diamond's America from the Jazz Singer for just a few brief moments. As Neil Diamond sings, and as we shall see in the American tapestries, The Immigrant's Tale, they're still coming to America because, battered as they may be, the ideals still hold. The American tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals, to remember our ideals and to live up to the better angels of our nature. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Remember, past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Next month on the American Tapestry Project, the American Dream, Success Stories, Horatio Elger, and a Nation of Hustlers. Thank you. Thank you for supporting listener-supported public radio, 91.3 FM, WQLN, Erie.